Chapter 7 of Wittershins. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sammy Bean. Wittershins by Oliver Onion. Chapter 7. The Cigarette Case. A cigarette case, Loader? I said, offering my case. For the moment, Loader was not smoking for long enough. He had not been talking. Thanks, he replied, taking not only the cigarette, but the case also. The others went on talking. Loder became silent again, but I noticed that he kept my cigarette case in his hand and looked at it from time to time. With an interest that neither its design nor its costliness seemed to explain, presently I caught his eye. A pretty case, he remarked, putting it down on the table. I once had one exactly like it. I answered that they were in every shop window. Oh, yes, he said, putting aside any questions of rarity. I lost mine. Oh, he laughed. Oh, that's all right. I got it back again. Don't be afraid. I'm going to claim yours. But the way I lost it, found it, the whole thing was rather curious. I've never been able to explain it. I wonder if you could. I answered that I certainly couldn't till I'd heard it, whereupon Loder, taking up that silver case again and holding it in his hand as he talked, began, This happened in Provence, when I was about as old as Marsham there, and every bit as romantic. I was there with Carol, you remember? Poor old Carol, and what a blade of a boy he was, as romantic as four Marshams rolled into one. Excuse me, Marsham, won't you? It's a romantic tale, you see, or at least the setting is. We were in Provence, Carol and I, Twenty-four, or thereabouts, romantic, as I say, and, and this happened, and it happened on the top of a whole lot of other things. You must understand the things that do happen when you're twenty-four. If it hadn't been Providence, it would have been somewhere else, I suppose, nearly, if not quite as good, but this was Providence. That smells, as you might say, of twenty-four, as it smells of argyle and wild lavender and broom. We'd had the dickens of a walk of it, just with knapsacks, had started somewhere in our dash and tramped south through the vines and almonds and olives of Montemar, Orange, Avnon, and for night at that blanched skeleton of a town, Lebo. We'd nothing to do, and had gone just where we liked, or rather just where Carol had liked, and Carol had had the de Bella Galinko in his pocket, and had had a notion, I fancy, of taking in the whole ground of Roman conquest. I remember he lugged me off to some place or other, Pores, I believe its name was, because I forgot how many thousands were killed in a riverbed there, and they stove in the water casks so that if the men wanted water, they'd have to go forward and fight for it. And then we'd gone to Arlo, where Carol had fallen in love with everything that had a bow of black velvet in her hair, and after that, Tarascon, Nims, and so on, and usual round, I won't bother you with that. In a word, we'd had two months of it, eating almonds and apricots from the trees, watching the women at the communal washing fountains under the dark plane trees, singing mangal and cucantes, and carol yarning away all the time about Caesar, and Versator, and Dante, and trying to learn provincial so that he could read the stuff in the journal des Fabrages that he'd never have looked at if it had been in English. Well, we got to Darbison. We'd run across some young chap or other, Rangan, his name was, who was a vine planter in those parts, and Rangan had asked us to spend a couple of days with him, with him and his mother, 
if we happen to be in the neighborhood. So, as we might as well happen to be there as anywhere else, we sent him a postcard and went. This would be in June or early in July. All day we walked across a plain of vines past hurdles of wild canes and great wind screens of velvety cypress. Sixty feet high, all white with dust on the north side of them, for the mistral was having its three days revel, and it whistled and roared through the canes till scores of yards of them at time were bowed nearly to the earth. A roaring day it was, I remember, but the wind fell a little late in the afternoon, and we were poring over what it had left of our ordnance survey like fools. We'd got the unmounted paper maps instead of the linen ones when Rangan himself found us coming out to meet us in a very badly turned out trap. He drove us back himself through Darvison to the house a mile and a half beyond it, where he lived with his mother. He spoke no English. Rangan didn't, though, of course, both French and provincial, and as he drove us, there was Carol using him as Franco-Provincial Dictionary, peppering him with questions about the names of things in the Patois. I beg his pardon, the language, though, there's a good deal of my eye in Betty Martin about that, and I fancy this Felbrege business will be in a good many pieces when Frederick Mistral is under the Court of Love pavilion arrangement he's had put up for himself in this graveyard at Milan. If the language has to go, well, it's got to go, I suppose, and while I personally don't want to give it a kick, I rather sympathize with the government. Those jaunts of a Sunday out to Lesbo, for instance, with paper lanterns and Bengal fire, and a fellow spouting a blanche vane d'urels, they're well enough to compare favorably with our bank holidays and Sunday league picnics. That's nothing to do with my tale, after all. So he drove on, and by the time we got to Rangan's house, Carol and I learned the greater part of Meg Alley. As you no doubt know, it's a restricted sort of life in some respects that a young Vinron lives in those parts. And it was as we reached the house that Rangan remembered something, or he might have been trying to tell us as we came along, for all I know and not been able to get a word in edgewise for Carol and his provincial, it seemed that his mother was away from home for some days. Apologies of the most profound, of course, our host was the soul of courtesy. Though he did try to get at us a bit later, we expressed our polite regards naturally, but I didn't quite see at first what difference it made. I only began to see when Rangan, with more apologies, told us that we should have to go back for Darbison for dinner. It appeared that when Madame Rangan went away for a few days, she dispersed the whole of the female side of her establishment also, and she'd left her son with nobody to look after him except the old man we'd seen in the yard mending one of these double-cylindered sulfur sprinklers. They clap across the horse's back and drive between the rows of vines, Rangan explained all this as we stood in the hall drinking an apertif, a hall crowded with oak furniture and photographs and a cradle-like bread crib and doors opening to right and left to the other rooms of the ground floor. He had also, it seemed, to ask us to be so infinitely obliging as to excuse him for one hour after dinner. Our postcard had come unexpectedly, he said, and already he had made an appointment with his agent about the vendage for coming autumn we begged him of course not to allow us to interfere with his business in the slightest degree he thanked us a thousand times 
but though we dine in a village we will take our own wine with us he said a wine surfin one of my wines you shall see then he showed us round his place i forget how many hundreds of acres of vines and into the great building with the presses and pumps and casks and the huge barrel they call the thunderbolt and about seven o'clock we walked back to darvison to dinner carrying our wine with us i think the restaurant we dined in was the only one in the place and our gallard of a host he was a straight-backed well set-up chap with rather fine eyes did us on the whole pretty well his wine certainly was good stuff and set our tongues going a moment ago i said a fellow like rangan leads a restricted sort of life in those parts i saw this more clearly as dinner went on we dined by an open window from which we could see the stream with the planks across it where the women washed clothes during the day and assembled in the evening for gossip there were a dozen or so of them there as we dined laughing and chatting in low tones they all seemed pretty it was quickly falling dusk all the girls are pretty then and are quite conscious of it you know marsham Behind them, at the end of the street, one of these great cypress wind-screens showed black against the sky, a raged edge, something like the line the needle draws on a rainfall chart, and you could only tell whether they were men or women under the plantains by their voices rippling and chattering, and suddenly a deeper note. Once I heard a muffled scuffle, and a sound like a kiss, it was then that Rangan's little trouble came out. It seemed that he didn't know any girls wasn't allowed to know any girls the girls of the village were pretty enough but you see how it was he'd a position to keep up appearance to maintain couldn't be familiar during the year with the girls who gathered his grapes for him in the autumn and as soon as carol gave him a chance he began to ask us questions about england english girls the liberty they had and so on of course we couldn't tell him much he hadn't heard already but that made no difference. He could stand any amount of that, or strapping your vigneron, and he asked us questions by the dozen, and we both tried to answer at once, and his delight and envy. What in England did the young men see the young women of their own class without restraint, the sisters of their friends, Meme, even at the house? Was it permitted that they drank tea with them in the afternoon, or without invitation to pass the sore? he had all the later provosts in his room he told us i don't doubt that he had the earlier ones also provost and disestablishment between them must be playing with mischief with the covenant systems of education for young girls and our young men was what do you call it co-ed co-educationalist by jove yes he seemed to marvel that we should have left a country so blessed as england to visit his dusty wild lavender smelling girlless province you don't know half your luck marsham while we talked after this fashion we'd left the dining-room of the restaurant and had planted ourselves on a bench outside with rangan between us with rangan suddenly looked at his watch and said it was time he was off to see this agent of his would we talk or take a walk he asked us and meet him again there he said but as his agent lived in the direction of his own home we said we'd meet him at the house in our hour or so off we went and being every englishman who stepped i don't doubt i told you how old how young we were hi ho 
Well, off goes Rangan and Carol, and I got up, stretched ourselves, and took a walk. We walked a mile or so until it began to get pretty dark, and then turned, and it was as we came into the blackness of one of these cypress hedges that the thing I'm telling you of happened. The hedge took a sharp turn at the point as we became round an angle. He saw a couple of women figures hardly more than twenty yards ahead. Don't know how they got there so suddenly, I'm sure. And that same moment I found my foot on something small and white and glimmering on the grass. I picked it up. It was a handkerchief, a woman's embroidered. The two figures ahead of us were walking in our direction. There was every possibility that the handkerchief belonged to one of them, so we stepped out. At my pardon, madame, and lifted hat. One of the figures turned her head. Then, to my surprise, she spoke in English, cultivated English. I held out the handkerchief. It belonged to the elder lady of the two, the one who had spoken a very gentle-voiced old lady, older by very many years than her companion. She took the handkerchief and thanked me. Somebody's stern, isn't it? says the Englishman. Don't travel to see Englishmen. I don't know whether he'd stand to that in the case of the Englishwoman. Carol and I didn't. We were walking rather slow along, four abreast across the road. We asked permission to introduce ourselves, did so, and received some name in return, which, strangely enough, I've entirely forgotten. I only remember that the ladies were aunt and niece and lived in Darbison. They shook their heads when I mentioned M. Rangan's name and said we were visiting him. They didn't know him. I'd never been in Darbison before, and I haven't been since, so I don't know the map of the village very well. But the place isn't very big, and the house at which we stopped in twenty minutes or so is probably there yet. It had a large double door, a double door in two senses, for it was a big porta corche with a smaller door inside it and an iron grill shutting in the hole. The gentle-voiced old lady had already taken a key from her ridicule and was thanking us again for the little service of the handkerchief. Then, with the little gesture one makes when... One has found oneself on the point of omitting a courtesy. She gave a little musical laugh. But, she said, with a little movement of invitation, one sees so few compatriots here. If you have the time to come in and smoke a cigarette, also the cigarette, she added, with another rippled laugh, for we have a few callers and live alone. Hastily, as I was about to accept Carol, was before me professing a nostalgia for the sound of the English tongue that made his recent protestations about provincial a shameless hypocrisy. Persuasive young rascal Carol was poor chap, so the elder lady opened the grill and the wooden door beyond it, and we entered. By the light of the candle which the younger lady took from a bracket just within the door, we saw that we were in a handsome hall of vestibule, and my wonder the Rangan had made no mention of what was apparently a considerable establishment was increased by the fact that its tenants must be known to be English and could be seen to be entirely charming. I couldn't understand it, and I'm afraid hypothesis rushed into my head that cast doubts on Rangans, you know, whether they were all right. We knew nothing about our young planter, you see. I looked about me. There were tubs here and there against the walls, gaily painted, with glossy-leaved aloes and palms. In them, one of the aloes, I remember, was flowering. A little fountain in the middle made a tinkling noise. We put our caps on a carved and gilt council table 
and before us rose a broad staircase with shallow steps of spotless stone and a beautiful wrought iron hand rail at the top of the staircase were more palms and aloes and double doors painted in a clear gray we followed our hostesses up the staircase i can hear yet the sharp clean click our boots made on that hard shiny stone and see the lights of the candle gleaming on the handrail the young girl she was not much more than a girl pushed at the doors and we went in the room we entered was all of peace with the rest of rather old-fashioned fineness it was large lofty beautifully kept carol went round for miss whatever her name was lighting candles and scones and as the flames crept up they glimmered on a beautifully polished floor which was bare except for an eastern rug here and there the elder lady had sat down in a gilt chair louis fourteenth i should have say with a stripped rep of the collar of a pentunia and i really don't know don't smile smith what induced me to lead her to it by the fingertips bending over her hand for a moment as she sat down there was an old tambour frame behind her chair, I remember, and a vast oval mirror with clustered candle brackets filled the greater part of the further wall, the brightest and clearest glass I've ever seen. He paused, looking at my cigarette case, which he had taken into his hand again. He smiled at some recollection or other, and it was a minute or so before he continued. I must admit that I found it a little annoying after what we'd been talking about at dinner an hour before that Rankin wasn't with us. I still couldn't understand how he could have neighbors so charming without knowing about them, but I didn't care to insist on this to the old lady, who, for all I knew, might have her own reasons for keeping to herself, and after all, it was our place to return Rankin's hospitality in London if we ever came there not so to speak on his own doorstep so presently i forgot all about rangan and i'm pretty sure that carol who was talking to his companion of some felberge junketing or other and having the air of gonan's morale hummed softly over to him didn't waste a thought on him either soon carol you remember what a pretty crooning humming voice he had soon carol was murmuring what they call seconds but so low that the sound hardly came across the room and i came in with a soft bass note from time to time no instrument you know just uh, an accompanied murmur no louder than an alien harp and it sounded infinitely sweet and plaintive and what shall i say weak attuned faint pal you might almost say in that formal rather old-fashioned salon with that great clear oval mirror throwing back the still flames of the candles and the scones on the walls outside the wind had now fallen completely all was very quiet and suddenly in a voice not much louder than a sigh carol's companion was singing oft in a stilly night you know it he broke off again to murmur the beginning of the air then with a little laugh for which he saw no reason he went on again well i am not going to try to convince you of such a special and delicate thing as the charm of that hour it wasn't more than an hour it would be all about an hour we stayed things like that just have to be said and left 
You destroy them. The moment you begin to insist on them, we've every one of us had experiences like that, and don't say much about them. I was as much in love with my old lady as Carol evidently was with his young one. I can't tell you why being in love has just to be taken for granted, too. I suppose Marsham understands. We smoked our cigarettes and sang again, once more filling the clear painted quiet apartment with a murmuring note louder than if a light breeze found that the bells of a bed of flowers were really bells and played on. The old lady moved her fingers gently on the round table by the side of her chair. Oh, infinitely pretty it was. Then Carol wandered off into the cucantes, awfully pretty. It is not for myself I sing, but for my friend who is near me. And I can't tell you how like four old friends we were, those two so oddly met ladies and Carol and myself, and so too oft in stilly night again. But for all the sweetness and the glamour of it, we couldn't stay on indefinitely, and I wondered what time it was, but didn't ask anything to do with clocks and watches, would have seemed a cold mechanical sort of thing just then. And when presently we both got up, neither Carol nor I asked to be allowed to call again in the morning to thank them for a charming hour, and they seemed to feel the same as we did about it. There was no hoping that we should meet again in London, neither an or revoir nor a good-bye, just a tacit understanding that that hour should remain isolated except like a good gift without looking the gift horse in the mouth, single unattached to any hours before or after, I don't know whether you see what I mean. Give me a match, somebody. And so we left, with no more than looks exchanged and fingertips resting between the back of our hands and our lips. For a moment, we found our way out by ourselves down the shallow step staircase with the handsome handrail and let ourselves out of the double door and grill. Closing it softly, we made for the village without speaking a word. Hi-ho! Loader had picked up the cigarette case again, but for all the way his eyes rested on it, I doubted whether he really saw it. I'm pretty sure he didn't. I knew what he did by the glance he shot at me, as much as to say, I see you're wondering where the cigarette case comes in, he resumed with another little laugh. Well, he continued, we got back to Rangan's house. I really don't blame Rangan for the way he took it when he told him. You know, he thought we were pulling his leg, of course, and he wasn't having any, not he. There were no English ladies in Darbison, he said. We told him as nearly as we could just where the house was. We weren't very precise, I'm afraid, for the village had been in darkness as we had come through it. And I had to admit that the cypress hedge I tried to describe where we'd met our friends was a good deal like other cypress hedges, and as I say, Rangan wasn't taking any I myself was rather annoyed that he should think we were returning his hospitality by trying to get at him, and it wasn't very easy either to explain in my French and Carol's provincial that we were going to let the thing stand as it was and weren't going to call on our charming friends again. The end of it was that Rangans just laughed and yawned. I knew it was good, my wine, he said, but... I shrugged, said the rest, not so good as all that he meant. Then he gave us our candles, showed us our rooms, shook our hands, and marched off to his own room, and 
the provost. I dreamed of my old lady half the night after coffee the next morning. I put my hand into my pocket for my cigarette case and didn't find it. I went through all my pockets, and then I asked Carol if he'd got it. No, he replied. Think you left it behind at the place last night? Yes, did you? Rangan popped in with a twinkle. I went through all my pockets again. No cigarette case. Of course, it was possible that I'd left it behind, and I was annoyed again. I didn't want to go back, you see. But, on the other hand, I didn't want to lose the case. It was a present, and Rangan's smile nettled me a good deal, too. It was both a challenge to our truthfulness and testimonial to that very good wine of his. Might have done, I grunted. Well, in that case, we'll go and get it. If one tried the restaurant first, Rangan suggested, smiling again. By all means, said I stuffily. Though I remembered having the case after we'd left the restaurant, we were round at the journalist by half-past nine. The case wasn't there. I'd known Jolly well beforehand it wasn't, and I saw Rangan's mouth twitching with amusement. So we now seek the abode of English ladies, Hein, he said. Yes, said I. And we left the restaurant and strode through the village by the way we'd taken the evening before. Then the Vigneron's smile became more and more irritating to me. It is then the next village, he asked presently, as we left the last house and came out into the open plain. We went back. I was irritated because we were two to one, you see, and Carol backed me up, a double door with a grill in front of it. He repeated for the fifteenth time. Rangan merely replied that it wasn't our good faith, he doubted. He didn't actually use the word drunk. Mez Tains, he said suddenly, trying to conceal his mirth. Sisis possible, sisis possible. I double door with a grill, but perhaps that I know it. The Demachel of these so elusive ladies come this way he took us back along a plantain grove street and suddenly turned up an alley that was little more than two gutters and a crack of sky overhead between two broken tile roofs it was a dilapidated deserted rule uh, i was positively angry when rankin pointed to a blistered old porte corche with a half unhinged railing in front of it is it that your house he asked no, says I, and no, says Carol, and off we started again, but another half hour brought us back to the same place, and Carol scratched his head. Who lives there, anyway, he said, glaring at the port course, chin forward, hands in pockets. Nobody, says Rangan, as much as to say, look at it, monsieur, then meditates, taking it, then I struck him, quite out of temper by his time. How much would the rent be? I asked, as if I really thought of taking the place just to get back at him. He mentioned something ridiculously small in the way of francs. One might at least see the place, says I. Can the key be got? He bowed, and the key was at the baker's, not a hundred yards away, and he said, We got the key. It was the key of the inner wooden door. That grid of rusty iron didn't need one. It came clean off its single hinge when Carol touched it. Carol opened, and we stood for a moment, motioning to one another to step in. Then Rangan went in first, and I heard him murmur, Pardon, Mez Dames? Now, this is the odd part. We passed into a sort of vestibule or hall with a burst lead pipe in the middle of a dry tank in the center of it. There was a broad staircase rising in front of us to the first floor, and double doors just seen in the half-light, 
At the head of the stairs, old tubs stood against the walls, but the palms and aloes in them were dead, only a cabbage stalk or two, and the rusty hoops lay on the ground about them. One tub had come to pieces entirely, and was no more than a heap of staves on a pile of split earth, and everywhere, everywhere was dust. The floor was an inch deep in dust, and old plaster that muffled our footsteps. Cobwebs hung like old dusters on the wall. A regular goblin's tatter of cobwebs draped the little bracket inside the door, and the wrought iron of the handrail was closed up with webs in which not even a spider moved. The whole thing was preposterous. It is possible that for even a less rental, Rangan murmured, dragging his forefinger across the handrail and leaving an inch-deep furrow. Come upstairs, said I suddenly. Up we went. All was in the same state there. A clutter of stuff came down as I pushed at the double doors of the salon, and I had to strike a stinking French sulfur match to see into the room at all. Underfoot was like walking on thickness of flannel, and except where we put our feet, the place was as printless as a snowfield dust, dust unbroken, gray dust, my match burned down. Wait a minute, I've a bogey, said Carol, and struck the wax match. There were the only sconces, with never a candle end in them. There was the large oval mirror, but hardly reflecting Carol's match for the dust on it, and the broken chairs were there, all gutless and rickety old round table. But suddenly I darted forward, something new and bright on the table, twinkled with the light of Carol's match. The match went out, and by the time Carol had lighted another, I had stopped. I wanted Rangan to see what was on the table. You'll see my footprints how far from the table I've been, I said. Will you pick it up? And Rangan, stepping forward, picked up from the middle of the table my cigarette case. Loader had finished Nobody spoke for quite a minute. Nobody spoke, and then Loder himself broke the silence, turning to me. Make anything of it, he said. I lifted my eyebrows. Only your Vigneron's explanation, I began, but stopped again, seeing that wouldn't do. Anybody make anything of it, said Loder, turning from one to another. I gathered from Smith's face that he thought one thing might be made of it, namely. Then Loder had invented the whole tale, but even Smith didn't speak. <laughs> Were any English ladies ever found to have lived in the place murdered? You know bodies found and all that? Young Marsham asked, diffidently yearning for an obvious completeness. Not that we could ever learn, Loder replied. We made inquiries, too. So you all give it up. Well, so do I. And he rose as... He walked to the door myself, following him to get his hat and stick. I heard him humming softly, the lines they are from oft in the stilly night. I seem like one who treads alone, some banquet hall deserted, whose guests are fled, whose garlands dead, and all but he departed. End of chapter 7 Recording by Sammy Bean